Welcome to Brain Observations, the podcast where we talk about the brain and we look at the mind as an important aspect of your health. What can we do ourselves to improve our experience of life? This podcast is my way of looking for those answers. I set out to find and talk to some of the most knowledgeable people out there. And at the end of each episode, I sum up what we learned from today's guest. Mia and Maria Sandel. I'm a neurologist and I hope to make scientific evidence on well-being and brain health more easily available. I also want to mention that even though I am a medical doctor, this is a personal project and not affiliated with my hospital. The information in this podcast is meant to educate and inspire and should not be taken as medical advice. I do advise you to discuss any potential changes to your lifestyle with your own personal doctor. And this is even more important if you're experiencing trouble with your mental health. Today's guest, Cortland Dahl, has a deep understanding of meditation, both from experience as well as scientific work. He became interested in both science and meditation at a young age and spent many years in Asia, eight of them living in Tibetan refugee settlements. He is fluent in Tibetan and has translated several classic Buddhist works into English. He is himself a meditation teacher and also co-founder and executive director of Turgor International, a global network of meditation groups and centers. And for the last decade, he's been working on scientific studies with a passion for exploring the interface between science and contemplative practice. He is currently a research scientist and chief contemplative officer at Center for Healthy Minds in Madison, Wisconsin, United States. Today we sit down and we talk about psychological well-being. Cortland and his team have developed a framework with four different fundamental components of well-being. So we will learn about awareness, connection, insight and purpose and look at why they are important for our happiness. Finding a balance between these four components of well-being is important for really thriving and being happy where you are. Hi, Cortland, and welcome to Brain Observations. I'm so happy to have you here. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I am really excited about a quite recent article that you wrote called The Plasticity of Well-Being, a training-based framework for the cultivation of human flourishing. And in this article, you look at well-being as composed of four main components that can be cultivated through mental training. So when you think of well-being, how would you define that for yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. The first thing I would say is that well-being is really complex. You know, it, it addresses everything from financial well-being, the, the health of our relationships, to, of course, our emotional and psychological well-being. So in our work and the paper that you referenced and the framework we've developed is really focused on what we call psychological well-being. So of all these different dimensions of well-being specifically, what does it really look like when our psychological state is really um, on track? So we focus on two key components when it comes to psychological well-being. The first is resilience. In other words, it's not just being happy all the time when we might be facing adversity as we've faced many times over the course of the past year with the pandemic. What is it that's going on in our own minds that allows us to deal well with adversity, even to learn and grow from adversity? So resilience is one key component of psychological well-being. And then the second part of that is when things might actually be going relatively well, what is it that leads to this subjective experience that we're really at our best, that we're really flourishing, 
that we're thriving. So it's not just getting by and being okay, but really, really feeling that we are flourishing in our lives. So as you mentioned, we, we've kind of come up with these four key dimensions that are kind of the ingredients, you might say, of psychological well-being. How did you come up with these different components? Yeah, so we looked, um, we looked at a range of different bodies of knowledge, really, and we're focused on the points of convergence. In other words, if you look at neuroscience, if you look at clinical psychology, if you look at the world's wisdom traditions, the meditative and contemplative traditions of the world, and then, of course, research on positive psychology and research on well-being, if you look at all of those and you kind of add all that up, where do they agree? Where are these points of convergence where they're all point, seem to be pointing in a similar direction? So we really kind of looked across these different fields and we're not presenting these four as, as kind of the, the entirety of psychological well-being, but rather these are, are four very clear evidence-based strategies that contribute to well-being. So it was, really, it was really kind of synthesizing a lot of knowledge across these different domains. And then both looking at the knowledge of what is increasing people's subjective feeling of happiness, but also looking at different brain areas and brain regions that have been looked at through research as well, then I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And there's, you know, there's a lot of variability in terms of how much we know about the brain. Neuroscience in general is quite new, you know, and the, the tools we have to study the brain in some respects are still quite crude. I, I imagine a hundred years from now, we'll look back and almost laugh at the, the kinds of ways we were studying the brain. But nevertheless, we do know some things about the brain and we have learned a lot over these past few decades. And one of those, one of the points that we have a growing body of knowledge about is the, the neural correlates of these different aspects of well-being. So when, for example, you can learn to be present and aware. So right now, you know, if you're listening to this and you consciously direct your attention to the feeling of your feet on the floor, you're activating networks in your brain related to attention. You're activating networks in your brain related to what we call executive control or executive function. So there's a lot we don't know. There's many more questions than answers at this point, but there's emerging evidence that points to specific brain networks that underlie these dimensions of well-being that we focused on. Could you tell us a bit about those four different dimensions and what did you find when you went through the research? The shorthand for the four that we use is these four words of awareness, connection, insight, and purpose. So at our center, at the, the Center for Healthy Minds here at the University of Wisconsin, we always say ACIP, A-C-I-P, that's because it's, you know, there's a lot there. So we just, everybody has come to calling them ACIP, but really that's the four, awareness, connection, insight, and purpose. And each of these, they're of course, quite different from one another. Each of them is contributing something unique and important to our overall well-being. And just to say something very brief about each one, awareness you can think of as our capacity to be fully aware and present with what is going on within us and around us. So, uh, for example, when I first, one of the things actually that prompted me on my own personal journey that led to the scientific work we're doing and other things in my life was when I was a university student, now almost 30 years ago, and I had a tremendous amount of anxiety. In fact, this kind of thing would have completely freaked me out. I, I had a, a phobia of public speaking. This is the kind of thing that I would have been lying in bed a few weeks ahead of time and thinking about all the million ways it could go wrong. So for me, awareness became incredibly important. And I learned to meditate actually at that same time. I learned to step back and notice my own thoughts and emotions 
and to see that I could actually observe them without getting swept away by my own reactions. So for other people, it might not be anxiety. It could be, you know, anger or aggression. It could be sadness. It could be depression. There's any range of different things that we experience, or it could just be simply our, our impulses, right? Like we want to follow our healthiest impulses and not get caught up by our unhealthy impulses. So awareness is that capacity to know what is happening in your own mind and body and environment with a kind of heightened sense of presence. So you can see how that could be vital both for resilience, but also to help us be at our best. So similarly, connection are the qualities of mind that help us to form and maintain healthy relationships, or even simply to have supportive interactions with other people, even if it's not people we you know, have long standing relationships with. Uh, so things like appreciation, gratitude, compassion. Insight is, is very central to a lot of the world's kind of psychotherapeutic traditions. And it's really about self-inquiry. It's the ability to not only be aware, but to examine one's own thoughts and emotions and then to see how they're shaping experience. So again, to use my personal story, insight would have shown up as you know, first being able to see that I was having all these anxious thoughts. And then I could see, oh, actually these thoughts are like a magnet. They're attracting certain kinds of information and they're repelling other kinds of information, right? And so it's not to judge that, but just to know, oh, look at what my mind is doing right now. This is so interesting. It's kind of screening out positive information and it's attracting like a magnet, all this negative information. And just, just to see that clearly. It's shaping your reality. Exactly. That's exactly it. To see how your thoughts, emotions, even your beliefs shape reality. And the fourth one is purpose, which is just the feeling that our, our lives and pursuits are meaningful, that we have values and deeper motivations that guide us and we feel connected to those. So anyways, that's the, the kind of the, the big picture view of these four dimensions of awareness, connection, insight, and purpose. And when you look at awareness, you talk about how you're aware of your own thought patterns, you're aware of your emotions, what's going on in your body, what's going on outside of your body. Is it connected to mindfulness and being in the present moment and truly experiencing where you are at as well? Yeah, exactly. I mean, mindfulness is one of the most important ways to strengthen this kind of awareness that we're talking about. And it's course, something you find increasingly, you know, in kind of contemporary medicine, you know, with mindful-based stress reduction, but you find it in many of the world's contemplative traditions as well. But that's just it. Mindfulness is essentially that quality of being fully present, of being attuned to what's happening in the moment versus being caught up in thoughts about the past or the future, or even just being absorbed, you know, when you're kind of on autopilot, you feel like you're just absorbed in your activity and you're not fully present. Uh, and aware of what's going on within you and around you. Do we know? Because when you are fully present in something that you're doing, generally that generates a feeling of of joy. You feel more, you feel happier when you're actually engaged in what you're doing, even if it's just doing the dishes. Do we know what that comes from? Why do we feel happier then? It's a good question. You know, and there, as you said, there's some really good research showing that roughly half the time, we are not paying attention to what we're doing. And also that when we're not paying attention, as you just said, we tend to not feel as content. And interestingly, it's not just when we're doing things that are fun. As you said, when you're doing the dishes, even if it's mundane or even a challenging activity, that when we're fully present and aware and not distracted, actually, we tend to be more happy uh, and more content. 
And there's a lot we don't know. I think there's, this is an area where there's a lot more research to be done. But one thing that we do know is that when we're distracted, usually what's happened is there's activity in this part of the brain called the default mode network. Uh, this is basically when, when our mind is not otherwise occupied with an important task, like we're trying to figure something out or we're thinking about something consciously and intentionally, or we're trying to focus on some you know, task that's in front of us. This is basically what the mind and brain automatically do. That's why it's called the default mode network. So if you look at well, what's happening when this network in the brain is activated, what's going on subjectively, we're thinking. And we're not just thinking about anything. We're usually thinking about ourselves. And we're ruminating about ourselves and our lives. Now, there's probably some people who that's a good experience for. But a lot of times, you know, we're remembering some stressful thing from earlier in the day or much further back. Or we're imagining what's going to happen in the future. Oftentimes, it's not such pleasant, positive, constructive thoughts. It might be things that are just creating stress in our mind and body. So again, there's a lot more research to be done here, but I think that's certainly part of it is that we tend to think a lot. We obsess about ourselves and it's oftentimes not so constructive, can even be negative thoughts and ruminations. Yeah. So what you can see is that there are positive aspects to increasing your awareness. And at the same time, we can see the negative aspects of having a lack of awareness. There are sort of two sides of it pointing towards it being something important for our psychological well-being. Exactly. And you know, we've, many of us have probably had this experience where say you have a stressful uh, day, maybe you had a bad meeting at work, or you got into an argument with a spouse or a friend or something, and then you're lying in bed at night and you just want to go to sleep, but your mind is replaying that event over and over again. You know, and there's a reason, there's all sorts of, even from the point of view of evolution, there's a reason why that's occurring from a biological basis. But experientially, we just know it's not, it's not pleasant. It keeps us from getting a good night's rest. And so awareness is one of these things that allows us to use the beneficial aspects of our ability to think and plan and imagine things, but not have all this more destructive qualities where it kind of we get caught by all of that and it, it hijacks our, our mind and even our biology, it even hijacks our biology. Yeah, it increases the stress response, it increases baselines of cortisol and has a detrimental effect on the body then long term. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And do we see the same thing with connection? How does it affect us when, when we do have good connections with other people? And how does it affect us negatively when we don't? This is one of the areas where there is a tremendous amount of scientific research and data, but it somehow has not made it into our social and healthcare systems in the way that other scientific knowledge has. So just to give one example, there's large scale epidemiological research that shows the quality of our relationships is as important for physical health, not mental health, but physical health, even mortality, whether we're going to actually survive, you know, over a period of time as smoking, as smoking is. And it's more important, it's a better predictor of, of mortality than things like obesity, exercise, diet. So it's really only smoking that's at that same level of the, the role it plays in our physical health. But, you know, when we go, at least here in the US, when you go see a doctor and you have health challenges, they talk to you about diet. They talk to you about increasingly about sleep and drinking enough water and exercising. Nobody asks you about your relationships and what, and nor do they tell you what you can do to have more positive, constructive relationships. 
It's kind of shocking given the amount of data that actually exists. The good news is that they very much are, there are things we can actively do that will strengthen our connections. And one key point from the science is that it's not the objective circumstances of our relationships, it's how we feel about our relationships that really seems to matter. So just being much more social isn't always enough. It can help. But if you know, we've all had the experience, or many of us have, where you can be in a room full of people but feel alone. So how do we feel connected is the question. So it goes more than to the feeling of connectedness that you actually have true, meaningful connections, meaningful relationships, rather than this many friends on Facebook that you don't really interact with. Yeah, um, I'll have to restrain myself from geeking out and sharing some of the, the interesting research on social media. But I think it very much supports what you're saying. I mean, you know, part of what that shows is that actually social media isn't always detrimental. When we're connecting with people we're close to via social media, actually can be helpful for well-being. But it's when it's like we're looking at some person we don't know very well, living some fantasy good life where it seems like everything is perfect. You know, of course, we don't see them waking up in the morning before their first cup of coffee. We don't see them when they're stressing out over their credit card bills, right? We only see these nice images. We see the curated version. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, so that is the question. How can we shape our perspective so that we really not only have, but really feel that sense of connectedness to the people in our lives? And for awareness, you said that mindfulness and focused meditation is a good way to, to train that as a skill. When it comes to connectedness and, and deeper, more meaningful relationships, how can you train that? How can you increase that in your life? So there are some very simple strategies to strengthen our sense of connection with other people. For example, just like there is mindfulness meditation, there are meditations that strengthen appreciation, kindness, compassion, that, you know, similarly kind of activate networks in the brain that help us to feel those sense of that sense of connection. So for example, if you do say an appreciation meditation, rather than simply being aware of your breath or being aware of the sensations in your body as you would with mindfulness, you might actively be thinking about something. So you can bring different people to mind and train yourself to notice something that you respect, admire, or appreciate about these people. You can even kind of imagine scenarios where you're expressing that appreciation. And essentially what you're doing is you're activating networks in your brain that will then be, come online when, you're act, when you are actually interacting with other people. So it's almost like you're practicing. It's like you're, you know, in sports, like you're going through the motions and practicing a specific skill, and then you play the game. The game, of course, is real life when you're out there talking to people and interacting. But the meditation helps you kind of learn the skill so it, you can actually be using it in everyday life. So appreciation is a simple one because it's just the skill of noticing something positive about the people or even about yourself. And what I think is beautiful about that is that you're, the focus lies in what you can bring to the relationship, not what this person will bring to you. Because I think sometimes we get a bit caught up in how we want other people to relate to us. But when you look at loving kindness meditation and these types of practices, the focus lies more in how can you cultivate your own positive feelings and bring those into the relationship instead of expecting sort of things in return and expecting that my happiness should come from someone else. Uh, and I think that is a very powerful thing 
that sort of alludes to how much power we have over our own brain and our own happiness, that we can actually generate those feelings in regards to other people, regardless of how they interact with us. Yeah, it, it very much is something that we can train. And as you said, you know, in if you compare two different psychological states, one in which we're focused on our own needs and desires and trying to get those needs and desires met. And another one, as you just said, like when we're really intentionally focused on the well-being of another person, you know, something as simple as we're just consciously trying to notice the things we like about that person or things we respect about that person. In the first state, it it the kind of the it reinforces a view of oneself as being insufficient or lacking something, right? If you're focused on your own needs, you feel like there's something you don't have that you need from somebody else. But when you're, you know, in a, a generous frame of mind or you're appreciating, it not only is really positive for the other person, of course, it just feels good to be seen and appreciated, but it has this, this paradoxical effect on oneself because it reinforces a view of oneself as actually being enough rather than deficient you know, where you, you're not like looking to the world to fill you up all the time. You actually feel full so much so that you actually can be there for others and care for others. So it has like this sort of dual benefit, even though you're not doing it for yourself, it automatically reinforces well-being because it, it simply changes that perspective on oneself as really being enough, having enough so much so that you can actually share with others or be there for others. So connection is uh, connected to gratitude then in a way. Yeah, gratitude is certainly one of those skills. It's one of the, the things we can practice. And yeah, an, an incredibly powerful one. That's one of the ones that there's been quite a lot of work done in positive psychology, researching the effects of gratitude practices. Appreciation, you might almost think of as a broader category within which gratitude is maybe one piece. One thing that I think we, in our research, really, why we focused a bit more on appreciation, although we do very much talk about gratitude, is that Appreciation doesn't have to be self-related to oneself. Like it's not always being grateful for what somebody else might have done for oneself. Like you can just appreciate a sunset or you can appreciate a quality about a person, even if it's not something they did for you. It's just you you just appreciate somebody's sense of humor or that they, you know, are hard, a really hard worker or whatever it is. Whereas gratitude usually tends to be your gratitude because somebody helped you or you benefited. So it's a little in a positive way, it's a little self-referential. So it's not to paint it in a negative way, but it's appreciation doesn't always have to have that self-related focus. And then the third part of these four components, we've looked at awareness, we've looked at connection, and then there is insight. And what do you mean by insight? Insight is simply the, the capacity to understand one's own mind and how it works. So broadly, you could think about insight as being self-knowledge. And specifically, it's seeing how our thoughts, our emotions, our beliefs, our expectations are shaping our experience, and even how they shape our very sense of self, how we see ourselves and how we see the world. So it's really about this kind of experiential self-knowledge, not kind of intelligence or theories, but in the moment you can see how a particular emotion is shaping uh, the way you're seeing a situation, for example. And this is something that comes then a little bit from awareness, I suppose. You need the awareness to look within in order to think about these things and to philosophize around these beliefs and values that you have. 
Yes, you're a very astute observer. This is something we <laughs> talk a lot about, like the difference between self-awareness, which is for us a little bit more in the awareness category, the first of these dimensions of well-being, and here talking about self-knowledge. So to use a crude analogy, you know, if you look around your room right now, there are probably all sorts of things that just a moment ago you weren't aware of, right? You can just say color. You know, a moment before I said that, you probably were not thinking or, or consciously aware of color, right? You could say shape or all these different things. So it's kind of, awareness is sort of like that. We can shift things. We can move things up to the surface of our conscious awareness. It's the spotlights. Yeah, exactly. So it could be our emotional state. We are swept up in emotion, and then we can step back and say, oh, I realize that I'm frustrated right now, and I realize I can see and experience how that I'm feeling that in my body, or I can step back and see the thoughts that are playing out in my mind. So that's self-awareness. Insight and self-knowledge take that a step further, exactly as you're saying, where we then can examine them. You need to have the self-awareness to start, but then based on that, you can examine it. You can say, all right, I'm having this thought. Let me just step back and ask, how is this shaping how I'm seeing this situation right now? So for example, you know, having a phobia of public speaking, I might say, okay, I can see now I'm, I have all sorts of assumptions that may or may not be true about what's going to happen when I give that speech next week, right? Those are just assumptions. Maybe they're true, but maybe they're not true. Who knows? So to go back to the analogy of the room, like you can see the room and all the colors. Insight would be like, you know how the room was constructed. You know how the whole room was built. You know, and if something went wrong with the room, like, you know, the door handle broke or whatever, like you would know how to fix it because you know how the whole thing all fits together. So it's the related, self-awareness and self-knowledge are related, but a little bit different and both, again, play an important role. What does the research point to when it comes to insight and its role in, in happiness and well-being? Yeah, this is an area that we're especially excited about in terms of research, because we think that this is going to be one of the, the new frontiers of scientific research in the coming years. We're starting to do more and more in this area. So right now, uh, a lot of the research on insight is from the world of psychotherapy, because many forms of psychotherapy are essentially using the tools of self-inquiry to generate insight. So to give one example, uh, the work of Aaron Beck, one of the towering figures of, of modern psychology, he came up with this idea of cognitive insight, but was specifically looking at people who have severe psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia. And with populations like that, he saw that people suffering from schizophrenia or psychosis who were able to step back and examine their own beliefs and perceptions had much better treatment outcomes. So that was like one of some of the earliest research, of course, with clinical populations. There has since been more research on insight done with, with healthy populations, people who don't have any kind of diagnosed disorders like schizophrenia. What has not yet been examined and which we're beginning to move into is to think about, to look at the role that insight plays not only in helping us to be more resilient and how we deal with adversity, but how it might actually help us to flourish as well. And this is where the world's contemplative traditions oftentimes view insight as the, the key to human flourishing. And what it seems to do, and we've done work at our center, some pioneering research in this area, is it it's highlighting that inside practices really seem to fundamentally change our sense of self. So it might start with self-knowledge, but eventually it leads to what we call self-transcendence. 
So there's also growing work on psychedelic like uh, psilocybin and other psychoactive chemicals that seem to do something similar. But it really just calls us to really change our perspective on our very sense of self in a, in a positive way. So we've done some work in that area. It's a very promising area of research. And then that falls back onto connection, I can imagine, since when you, let's say that you're in a relationship with someone and you have a difference of opinion, if you can understand yourself and your reactions and where that is coming from and why you might be triggered by certain things, that can certainly help in trying to sort of solve the issue and also maybe trying to understand the other person's view. Exactly. Then that raises a very important point about well-being in general and this our framework for well-being, which is really points to the importance of, of having balance and integration among these four dimensions of well-being. Because as you said, if you just take a relationship, say you have, you know, uh, a partner, you know, and, and the question is, how can we really have a, a strong, supportive, nurturing relationship? As you were just pointing to, insight is critical to that. Like it might help you see your reactions and what might be getting in the way. It might help you better understand how, where they're coming from in their perception. Similarly, awareness can be very helpful. In fact, when I started meditating, one of the first things I noticed, although I didn't expect this to happen, was simply being able to be a good listener, which is, you know, one of maybe the most important skills in relationships, just really caring about people and listening to them. So you could see all of these as you're pointing to all of these different dimensions, although can, it might seem like connection is the one for relationships. All of them have a role to play just as, as if you take something like having a, a sense that you're thriving at work, whatever your profession might be, all of these different uh, dimensions have a role to play in that. And so the last one then would be purpose. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes. Purpose is another one for which there is a tremendous amount of scientific evidence. Similar to what I shared earlier about connection, there's a ton of evidence that shows that having a sense of purpose in life is not only vital for psychological well-being, but even physical health. So take just one simple example. There's research that shows that if you have surgery, a major surgery, that people who have a strong sense of purpose recover faster. People who have a strong sense of purpose tend to live longer. It's for people later in life, it's, it's a, one of the major predictors for longevity. So purpose in a nutshell is our ability to both have a sense of inner clarity uh, about our most deeply held values and deeper motivations, and also the ability to embody them in daily life. And this one is tricky because I think oftentimes when we hear about a sense of purpose, it sounds like, you know, you should be solving world hunger every day or like volunteering and people think it needs to be some huge grand activity. But what the research shows is that it's much more about your perspective on the things you do every day. So it's not to do things that are more meaningful, but to find more meaning in the things you already do. So, and again, that's a skill. That's something you can practice and can train. There's really interesting research in, in that area. And one of the examples of that that comes to mind to me is I once heard of a, I think there might have been a study done where they looked at different people and how happy they were in their workplace. And they looked at people doing cleaning and janitors in hospitals. And the ones that found a purpose to their job were happy at work and were thriving and enjoyed what they were doing. What they would often say is that they saw themselves as a part of the healthcare team. They were a part of making the patients 
feel better and heal and, and cure because they would look after the surroundings. They would make sure that things were clean. They would make sure to help prevent spreading infection. They were an essential part of the healthcare team. And the ones that managed to see themselves as such were thriving at work. That's exactly it. That, that's, in fact, that's a perfect example of this point that it's our perspective that gives us the sense of purpose, not that we need to live some fantasy life where we're out, you know, doing, you know, saving the world with every step we take. And that's such a beautiful one because it's, I mean, you can just imagine if you, again, the activity might not change. You're just, say, cleaning a room at a hospital. If you're just viewing this as a paycheck and it's just an obstacle in your life to get to something that you think is going to, you know, the things that you really care about or are passionate about, then the time you spend doing that is, is going to be depleting. You know, it's going to be boring or depleting. But as you said, imagine doing that same work. You're still cleaning that same hospital room, but you're viewing it as a gift you're giving to the people who are going to stay in that room so they can feel at home, you know, while they're having this scary experience in the hospital or you're keeping them safe, you know, so to make sure that they're, you know, not exposed. And then you can imagine that that would be so nourishing, you know, if you really view the work that way. And that's, that's exactly what the research finds, as you suggest. There is more and more evidence when it comes to the plasticity of the brain, meaning the adaptability of the brain, that we do have the capacity to change and we do have more control over our experience of life than maybe was previously thought that personality traits are not exactly traits. We can actually change and we can adapt through life. And I think this is a really beautiful notion. And when it comes to well-being, there are steps to be taken to all of these different components, right? If you feel like right now I'm at a point in my life where things are not going great, I'm not feeling great, there are things you can do, right, to move towards a greater sense of well-being. Yeah, the, the current view of the mind and the brain is a very hopeful one. As you mentioned, neuroplasticity, you know, one of the, the major insights of modern neuroscience is showing that the brain is changing all the time. Everything is, is influencing the state of the brain. And so we can use that capacity for change that exists in our brain and in our biology. And we just inject intention into that. We simply can be intentional about those changes. In fact, we've done research. We were just publishing a study with 700 school teachers here in the area where I live. And this was during the COVID pandemic. So, you know, incredibly difficult time. And we live in an area where the schools were all shut down. I mean, just school teachers in the United States have always, you know, it's very high levels of burnout and stress and mental health issues during the pandemic. Of course, that those numbers have been even higher. And the research we did, um, or the findings were quite remarkable. It showed that, you know, with this, we created a freely available app called the Healthy Minds Program. And in just five minutes a day for a month, we saw reductions in depression, anxiety, and stress and increases in things like social connectedness and mindfulness on par with what you would see from a much more intensive intervention, like the kind of thing where you'd go to a class for a couple hours a week and do all this homework. But in this case, it was just five minutes a day. And the, the coolest thing about it was that the people who were struggling the most seemed to gain the most. So when we're really, really having a hard time, it's not as though we need to be in some great state of mind to do these kinds of things and to learn these principles. Actually, it's when we're struggling and when we need them the most, that actually they can do the most good for us. And it could just be a, literally a few minutes a day 
can lead to some very, very significant outcomes. So someone who would like to look into these aspects and increase their well-being, what would you suggest that they that they do? There are different ways to to go about it, right? Yeah, there's these days it's easier and easier to learn some of these things. As I mentioned, you know, we developed the Healthy Minds app. There's many other apps out there. I mean, it's an easy way just to, you know, you can download something on your in your phone and start things uh, and start learning some of these ideas. I would say one of the most important things is is simply just to try a few different things and see what resonates. For some people, meditation is great. And it really, you know, people really resonate with that. And for other people, it's much harder. You know, with the Healthy Minds app, that's we kind of created a model where people can do an, a sitting meditation or an active practice. And we just heard over and over again that there's some people who said, like, I never would have done this if I had to, like, sit down and close my eyes and meditate quietly. It's just not, you know, I'm too active. I'm too you know, it's just not a good fit for me. And so giving them an option to learn the skills while you're going for a walk or doing the dishes, as you mentioned earlier. But, you know, that's just one example. There's many other things out there. If you like to read, there's so many good books these days. If you, you know, if you just start Googling or looking at wherever you buy your books. So I would just say, try a few different things and find, see what resonates and start simple, you know, really treat it Treat mental health and the health and your well-being as you would your physical health. We all know that you can't just eat healthy one day and then you're done and healthy for the rest of your life. It's just about small steps that you take every day. So even if it's just a minute or two where you're doing something intentionally to care for your own mind and your own brain, those small changes over time will add up to something that's much more enduring and lasting. Yeah. And it's a path. It's a work in progress. It is ever changing and, and you just keep continuing to look at where am I right now and what can I tweak to make it a better experience for me. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so what are you excited about right now? Where, where is this field going next? Well, we, you know, all the amazing work that's happened in the past, you know, 15 or so years on mindfulness, we feel like is a great foundation for future scientific research. It's really shown the scientific community and increasingly just the general public, this idea that that well-being is really a skill, you know, that it's not something that's just due to your biology or due to the circumstances of life. It's, as you were saying, it's a path, it's a practice, it's something you can learn. And then when we're, as I said earlier, when we're struggling the most, that's when we really can benefit from these. So we're very interested in, in kind of expanding that research to look at different a kind of a wider variety of practices. So in, in many ways, something like meditation, you could say is almost like saying exercise. There are many different kinds of physical exercise. There are many different kinds of meditation. So meditation is just training for the mind in the way that exercise is training for the body. So we see this more and more happening in schools, you know, in workplace settings, even at the governmental level. So it's, I think we're looking forward to a day in the not too distant future where we you know, caring for the brain and training ourselves in this way, learning these skills is as common as, you know, physical exercise and eating healthy is now. So part of that, I think, is just making it easier for people to learn and access these skills and to expand beyond mindfulness to include some of these other dimensions, like the ones we talked about today related to connection, insight, and purpose. So it's a very exciting time, you know, both for research, but also seeing this getting out in the world and the, the difference it makes in people's lives. 
That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on here today and talking about this. And thank you for the amazing work that you're doing. It's something that we really need in the world. And I'm also excited to see uh, what's coming up next. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I think that was awesome. I really enjoyed this talk. It gave me a lot of interesting things to reflect on. And it made me really happy and hopeful in total. If we look at some of the key parts of what we learned, that would be that there are four components of well-being, and those are awareness, connection, insight, and purpose. Awareness is the ability both to be aware of ourselves and our surroundings. So there is research showing that we spend about half of our awake time distracted, and during this time something called the default mode network is activated in our brain. This means that we're thinking, but we're not thinking about what is in front of us. What happens is that we're often ruminating about the past or worrying about the future, and for most people there is quite a lot of negative self-talk in this. So this is a possible explanation to why we're happier when we're living in the present and fully focused on what we're doing and experiencing in the moment. It moves our focus away from this repetitive loop running in our mind, and it gives us a moment of peace. Connection is one of the areas where there is most research showing benefits for not only psychological health, but also physical health. And having deeply felt relationships can actually be more beneficial for your health than things such as a healthy diet or regular exercise. And so we talked about two ways to improve our connections with others. The first one being practicing loving-kindness meditation, where you can focus on positive aspects of the people in your life and increase the strength in your brain networks related to appreciation. And this functions like a form of practice session that becomes useful when you're physically interacting with that person. Then those brain networks, they sort of kick into gear again and you generate more positive feelings toward this person. Another way is when you meditate and you train focused attention that makes you generally a better listener and it increases our awareness and presence when we're together with other people. Insight, the third component, is the capacity to understand one's own mind and how it works. It is seeing how our thoughts, our emotions, our beliefs, our expectations are shaping our experience. So the first step here is awareness to correctly identify what we're thinking and feeling, and then insight takes that a step further and lets you examine it. So Cortland gave a great analogy here. Awareness is like noticing the different colors in a room, while insight is like knowing how the room was constructed. So if a door handle breaks, you know how to fix it. Purpose is our ability to both have a sense of inner clarity about our most deeply held values and deeper motivations, and also the ability to embody them in daily life. And it's not so much about going out and finding this great purpose that is connected to helping people or saving the world or finding your passion. It's more about looking to what you're already doing, looking at what the different roles are that you have in your family, in society, the things that you spend your day doing, and finding purpose and meaning in those. It's about finding the right perspective on what you are already doing. So these four components are one framework that you can use to think about psychological well-being, and they all interact with each other. It's important to find the balance. I would like to thank you for your time and attention. And I hope you enjoyed this talk with Cortland Dahl as much as I did. And if you liked the material, please subscribe to the show.